Well, you are listening to The Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. My name is Todd Pruitt. I'm the pastor of Church of the Savior in Wayne, Pennsylvania, and I'm joined as always by Carl Truman, professor of church history, the Paul Woolley Chair professor of church history at Westminster Theological Seminary, and uh, a very distinguished part-time pastor at Cornerstone Presbyterian Church in Ambler, Pennsylvania. Your introduction always takes so long because you do so much, Carl. I, I am an extremely important person. You are very, you know, very uh, important. We're going to have to add an extra couple of minutes, ultimately, I think, to the podcast <laughs> in order to fit all of my tremendous and worthwhile accomplishments yes, in. Yes, yes. Well, uh, Todd, uh, today, of course, we uh, our listeners won't know this because they can't see where we are, but we're actually doing something quite exciting yes. today. We're, we're breaking with our practice of, of meeting in a, a studio at Church of the Savior in Wayne, Pennsylvania. And in the great tradition of investigative journalism, we're actually broadcasting on location and undercover. Looking for a better way to get up out of bed instead of getting on the internet and checking a new hit. Get up, first shot, come strut, walk it. A little bit of humble, a little bit of cautious. Todd and I have squeezed into our skinny jeans at, <laughs> at great physical danger to ourselves, uh, donned our Gospel Coalition t-shirts, pulled our Love the City baseball caps down to hide our faces, grabbed a couple of soy lattes with extra cinnamon, bluffed our way past the security guards, and are now sitting in the reception lounge of the famous Bronzed is Beautiful tanning booth <laughs> at the heart of the PCA's Church Planting Network training camp. We've grown out a patch of hair just yeah. under our lower lip. At a secret facility somewhere in Manhattan. The reason we're here? To interview the latest PCA Church Planter recruit, John No Gain Payne. Here, now they can't tell me nothing. We give that to the people. Spread it across the country. Labels out here, now they can't tell me nothing. We give it to the people. Spread it across the country. Can we go back? John, uh, start off with a softball question. The other night uh, we had dinner together, and I noticed you were drinking a glass of beer with a piece of fruit in it. Uh, is that something you would normally do, or is it a specific part of your Love the City urban church planter training? Well, Carl, after you uh, ordered your white Zinfandel, I felt free <laughs> to order my beer with an orange in it. And also, I want to thank you for the extra whip you have in my latte here uh, this afternoon. I really appreciated you taking the time to do you that. You are the uber church planter, by the way. You don't need to be trained, man. You're there. You're there. <laughs> you know, I, I have to tell you, though, Carl, I was a little bit disappointed when I met John because he doesn't have several of the trademarks that one learns to, uh, to anticipate in a church planner. He has absolutely no facial hair. He does not have square glasses. I'm kind of disappointed. I, I can't see a tattoo, actually. I, I mean, can't see a tattoo. No. I have not heard him use the word missional yet. No, he hasn't used or, or attract. He's not a very attractional no. person as he stands. No. I think there is, you know, fruit and beer notwithstanding, there's a certain <laughs> amount of work that the PCA needs to do with this guy before he really fits the, uh, the frame. Well, back. things have been uh, a little busy uh, with the move and everything, but I do have some appointments set up next week at the uh, tattoo parlor. <laughs> good, good. Um, <laughs> Going to get some piercings as well. Excellent. Um, uh, male grooming products. 
it's I have an appointment with uh, a Gap representative to get some skinny <laughs> jeans, um, and I've ordered you two a pair as well, just so Excellent. you don't uh, feel left out. I appreciate uh, that. It's always good much. too when someone in their forties has a little bit of a beer gut that can hang over the skinny jeans. <laughs> of course, that's highly effective, as yes, we've seen yes, in a lot of church planters. Right. We, we call that the muffin top. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you, you can cover it with a Mickey Mouse T-shirt, <laughs> this I is believe, true. but uh, maybe <laughs> we shouldn't go. I've got some. I've got some printed tees on the way as well with some uh, skeleton heads and palmetto trees on them. Excellent. Uh, being a good South Carolinian. Yes, being a good South Carolinian. I mean, oh. this guy is so gospel-centered. He is, I mean, he what is. we've just heard really, really, really <laughs> speak to, to New Testament Christianity That church Christianity may go today. okay. Well, that I'm, church I'm, just I'm may glad, work. I'm glad you guys recognize that. Thank you. <laughs> but seriously, John, you are, you're just leaving... Uh, a pastorate near Atlanta, Douglasville near Atlanta in Georgia, where you've been uh, an effective and uh, a beloved pastor to your people. You're moving to Charleston uh, in South Carolina to establish a church plant there. I have to say that church plant in Charleston, Carolina, South Carolina, doesn't sound too much of a sacrifice in many ways. Certainly, it's a, it's a beautiful town to Shrimp be in. Shrimp and grits. Yeah. One of the things I'd like to ask you about before we get on to your own philosophy of, of church planting, you know, there's a lot of noise about church planting today. It's a big thing. By and large, it's, it's a young and hip thing as well. And there are some good reasons why that would be the case. I think church planting does require, you know, joking aside, a certain entrepreneurial spirit, a certain frontier mentality. It requires a lot of, of energy. Uh, but when I read the pastoral epistles of Paul, of course, Paul is by and large thinking of the church being led by older guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're all here, we're in our 40s, and I'm su- ex- suspecting that we would be at perhaps even the younger end of the spectrum from Paul's perspective on things. Uh, you know, in some ways, you don't fit the profile of the contemporary church planter. You are an older guy and unashamed to embrace your your forty-ishness, your oldness, your superannuation. Uh, what led you away from a really good pastorate, pastoring to a really great bunch of people? I've had the privilege of preaching in your church a couple of times. Really great church, really great bunch of people. What has led you to to step out and to plant a church in in South Carolina? Yes, thanks for that, Carl. Um, yes, going to be very difficult to leave our. Our flock, um, it's a beloved flock. There's nothing negative. I've had people ask me, uh, why is it that you're leaving? What's wrong? And uh, nothing's wrong at all. Uh, And in fact, you speak about Charleston being an attractive place to to go and to live uh, in. It it is, uh, but it's more than a beautiful city to us. Uh, My wife, Marla, was, uh, uh, was living on the peninsula for... Uh, eight years in the uh, 1990s, and she's a graduate of the College of Charleston and also of the Medical University of South Carolina. She studied physical therapy there, and uh, after playing uh, soccer at uh, Clemson University, I I played professionally for a few years, and a part of that time was in Charleston. I, I played for the Charleston Battery soccer team, and it was during that stint with the Battery that I I met my wife in church uh, in Charleston. So. Uh, I say this to say that uh, a piece of our heart has always been there, and also we have recognized a real need uh, for uh, a, a reformed church there. Uh, there are uh, uh, PCA churches uh, that are laboring there, there's an APR, ARP church that's laboring there, and we uh, give thanks to God for their ministry. 
but there are 350,000 people in the the Charleston in Charleston County, and there are less than 500 people total in all of the PCA churches. And so there is a lot of uh, work to be done. Uh, we're looking forward to bringing uh, what we believe will be uh, a ministry that will be more reflective of the reformed heritage of uh, of the Charleston community uh, from the past. Uh, some of you may be familiar with Erskine Clark's book uh, on the South Carolina Low Country, Calvinism in the South in the South Carolina Low Country, from I think it's 1690 to 1990. Um, it's called Our Southern Zion. And in that book, he, he writes this. Uh, By 1860, a visitor riding down Meeting Street from the Battery would pass in order First Scots, Circular Congregational, Third Presbyterian, the Meeting Street side of Zion Presbyterian, and Second Presbyterian, all on a one-mile stretch of Charleston's central thoroughfare. Nothing. Nothing portrayed the presence of the Reformed tradition in the city more clearly than these five congregations with their impressive buildings lined up so closely together on Meeting Street. The Reformed community was not marginal in Charleston. On the contrary, its powerful presence so forcefully asserted on the city's primary thoroughfare proclaimed the Reformed community's strength and vitality. And some will know the names of John Girardot and Thomas Smith who are faithfully preaching uh, the word of God in Charleston, and what if there's anything in Charleston, uh, there's a, there are a lot of churches that are embracing a more contemporary, progressive form of church planting. Some of the the form that we were um, lampooning uh, just a few minutes ago, where really there's not a, a serious uh, orientation towards um, uh, reverence and worship, and serious shepherding ministry, serious discipleship. Uh, a lot of rock bands and and tight t-shirts and uh, and what I would just call plain worldliness. We we believe we should put our money where our mouth is when it comes to the sufficiency of Scripture. Right, and that's where I wanted uh, perfect segue because as I've familiarized myself with some of your work, particularly your little book on worship, which I think is really important. The the the, the thing that moves me so much is this commitment to God's ordinary means. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, you don't hear that, not, not only in, in church planning, but in the evangelical church in general, the whole idea of uh, a commitment to the sufficiency of God's ordinary means is absent. I was raised in um, Southern Baptist Church, mega church in Houston, Texas. I'd never heard that phrase before. Uh, for all of our bluster about the authority of scripture in Southern Baptist world. And I'm, that's where I came to know Christ. Very grateful. But for all of our commitment to the authority of scripture, what I never was really taught about was the sufficiency of scripture. And I wonder, just tell us a little bit if, if this is a, a new phrase to some of the folks listening, uh, what are the ordinary means? What do we mean when we talk about that? It, simply means that this is the ordinary way that God communicates his grace to his elect. And uh, God's promises are attached to the reading and preaching of scripture, uh, to the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. Uh, These uh, ordinary means of grace, as we call them, are uh, clearly set forth in our confession of faith, in the Westminster Confession and larger, shorter catechisms. 
Uh, it seems, though, even in our own Reformed heritage, uh, that we we forget that. Now, it, it it makes sense to me in some ways if someone has an Arminian uh, uh, philosophy of, of ministry or Arminian theology, that they're going to have all of these gimmicks and techniques, and they're going to rely upon those things in order to, to grow their churches. But Christ said he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. The question is, how is he going to build his church? Well, we as Reformed believers have always believed and heralded that it's through the ordinary means of grace that Christ himself will build his church. He will build his church in his way, on his terms. And so that's what we, we go forward uh, to, to seek to do. Uh, one thing I didn't mention earlier is we have had a tremendous amount of support. Carl asked about how this thing got started. It got started by uh, Pastor Rick Phillips from Second Presbyterian Church challenging me and saying, I know you have a heart for this area. There's a real need for uh, reformed ordinary means of grace ministry in this area. Will you go do this? And I sort of scratched my head and I thought, me, a church planter? Um, I've always sort of laughed at a lot of the, the church planting, uh, you know, uh, techniques and uh, and philosophy these days, but uh, really when I started searching my, my Bible, I didn't see any office of church planter. I see office of pastor teacher and office of, uh, of ruling elder and office of deacon. And so uh, I will be a pastor teacher in, in Charleston. Yeah, that raises an issue for me, John. A few, well, maybe a year ago, I was looking at the website of a, an influential Southern Baptist thinker. And I'm pretty sure that on his website, there was in, in his profile, was something effective. You know, I planted two dozen churches. I remember thinking to myself, I think you may have commented this way on the, on the Reformation 21 blog, saying you planted two dozen churches is, is a little bit like saying you've dated two dozen beautiful women. Uh, it may be an impressive thing. It may be a very unimpressive thing. Church planting is very sexy, for want of a better word. It's, it's a cool thing to do at the moment. Thank you, Carl. <laughs> and I have to say, actually, John, that you have a fuller head of hair than most of our guests. So, you know, you, you don't really fit our, our bald, miserable, True. and ugly clientele that exactly. Todd and I belong to and are pitching for. Uh, but but as, a, as, as a serious point, I, I have to say, I'm not into church planting. I'm into churches, and if somebody Amen. plants a church somewhere and it grows and becomes a church and they pastor it for 20, 25, 30 years, that's impressive. The hit and run guy, I think it is always easier to go to a place, plant a church, gather 30, 40 people, and then move on. My question for the individual who put that up on his, on his blog was, A, why aren't you still there at the first church you planted? You know, this is a guy my age and you planted double figure churches. Why aren't you still there at the first one? And secondly, how many of these churches are still going? Those are key questions that we get a lot of this. You know, we need to plant X number of churches by year, such and such. America is full of churches. Uh, we need churches that are, if we're planting churches, we need churches where the guy planting them is at the same time he's planting the church. Maybe he's buying a lot in the local cemetery. For him and his wife. Mm -hmm. Well, how would you respond to that, John? Yeah, I I can't agree more. Uh, I think there needs to be very uh, clear and persuasive, um, a clear and persuasive reason why you'd ever leave any ministry. And the the uh, the fact that we're leaving our church uh, after ten years of ministry is no uh, no easy decision. Um, 
but the prayer that we prayed a year ago when first approached with this, and it's been a year, so this has been a long process. It hasn't been overnight. I'm not in a midlife crisis looking to do something <laughs> new. Um, uh, we are. Uh, we prayed, Lord, give us objective uh, answers to prayer about how you are clearly leading in this situation. And over the months, he answered prayers that were just amazing. The kind of support that we've received has been fantastic. Yeah. John, you've... Uh, Actually, I was going to just ask John, I know that we were talking the other day and you said you got a series of short principles for church planters. Uh, we want to raise an issue of a, a church plant on continental Europe in just a couple of minutes, but maybe if you could run very quickly through the, the principles of church planting that you've set forward. Yes, just a couple of weeks ago, we had our first informational meeting at the South Carolina Society Hall. And uh, one thing I set forth for the, those that attended uh, uh, were, te- were eight principles uh, that this church plant will be um, founded upon. And these would be principles I think would be for any church in any place at any time. And they are, uh, number one, that we will be committed to biblical ministry. We, we sort of expounded upon that just a few minutes ago. We're going to be committed to the ordinary means of grace. We're going to be committed to gospel unity, not at the expense of truth, but we're going to have a warm piety associated with our church, not a coming in and criticizing other works. We're, we want to join hands with the other PCA churches in the area to get work done uh, for the Lord for the glory of God. Thirdly, we want to be committed to biblical and reformed worship. Uh, We're going to be unashamed about that. We're not coming uh, to do something groovy. Uh, We're not coming uh, to have the next uh, hip uh, praise band. We want to sing the best of Christian hymnody, psalmody, and uh, the best of hymns that are being written in our own day. I have been asked to teach you the basics of church planting. It is time to build your team. The most important leader in your new church will be your worship leader. There are three qualities to look for in a worship leader. First, he needs to be a man. Since the Reformation, God has only used men to lead worship. Except for Darlene Check and Brooke Frazier and that Job Chick. You do not want to incur the wrath of Piper, so just stick with a man for a worship leader. Second, your man worship leader must play the guitar. Keyboard playing worship leaders can no longer be used by God. Finally, your man worship leader must know how to use a dotted eighth note delay. I do not know what that means, but I do know that the Holy Spirit only moves in dotted eighth notes. Uh, fourthly, we want to be committed to our Reformed confession. Uh, we're going we're gonna to use that in our Sunday school classes. Uh, uh, it's a wonderful resource we have in our larger and shorter catechisms to instruct our children and to disciple our people. Fifthly, we want to be committed to the primacy of expository preaching. Uh, our, our sermon series aren't going to be based on the latest reality TV show. <laughs> uh, they're going to be based on Scripture, preaching line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through books of the Bible in the Lectio Continua fashion. Sixthly, we are going to be committed to the spiritual growth, oversight, and maturity of Christ's flock. Uh, Matthew 28, which is the mandate for every church planter. Uh, we want to make disciples, not just make converts, but to make disciples. Um, And then seventh, uh, committed to cultivating personal, family, and congregational piety. We're going to be encouraging a Lord's Day piety, the high Christian uh, day of the week. Uh, We want to encourage family worship. Um, And we also want to be committed to local 
and international outreach and missions. Uh, we want to have a robust uh, outreach to both the college students um, through the ministry of Ross and Joanna Hodges, who are going to be graduating from Westminster West here uh, in a month, going to be joining us out there. We want to be committed to reaching our community and from there reaching the world. You know, one of the things that struck me as you were going through that list was how those things resonate to younger Christians. Not, not so much the baby boomers. Uh, we've seen what they've done with the church by and large, but how those things are resonating with, uh, with, with college students, 20-somethings. Uh, some of that's anecdotal, but I've, I see it over and over again in my own ministry where uh, students, 20-somethings, young 30-somethings, um, are tired of of the sort of thing they were raised in in the baby boomer church and are crying out for something more substantive. So may your tribe increase on that. Um, um, John, tell us just a bit about uh, this new book that was just released on the Heidelberg Catechism. You've edited it. It's it's a series of, of essays. I've just picked up a copy myself. Um, tell us about why that book and then what's happening with that book. 2009, we were, uh, Sebastian Heck, who is the co-editor, uh, and I were in uh, Geneva for the Calvin 500 conference, and we were looking forward to, um, uh, to 2013 and the 450th anniversary of the Heidelberg Catechism, of a, of a confession that we, uh, many of us, uh, know and love. And, and so Sebastian and I uh, began speaking to some authors about being a part of that, both uh, in the Netherlands and here in America. Uh, primarily those who hold to the three forms of unity and decided to put together this volume to, to celebrate and commemorate the, the Heidelberg Catechism. It's also um, meant to help bring some awareness to Sebastian Heck's uh, wonderful church planting ministry in Heidelberg, where he is uh, seeking to see that heritage restored in that land. And uh, all the proceeds to the book will go to the church plant. Yeah, Sebastian Heck is a, a great fellow. John and I, we had the privilege of being out for his ordination a couple of years ago. It was a great gathering. And Germany is a land of, of great gospel darkness at the moment. It's yes. a hard place to be a church planter, and it's yes. especially hard to plant a church that represents the best of German theology, ironically. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I've, I've walked into a couple of uh, antiquarian bookstores in Heidelberg and, and uh, notable ones uh, right near the Heiligeistkirche, the, Holy, the Church of the Holy Spirit. And uh, I ask if they have any uh, older uh, antiquated volumes or, or uh, copies of the Heidelberg Catechism and they look at me with a blank stare. It's, it's a forgotten heritage. Yeah. yeah, and yet it is a beautiful document because it so emphasizes the centrality of assurance. Which I often say to students at Westminster, you know, convert to Catholicism, Roman Catholicism, there are various things that to some extent I can sympathize with. You, you gain historical rootedness. Often you gain a, a seriousness about worship and a serious aesthetic that one doesn't mm. often find in, in evangelical worship today. But you lose that pearl above price. You lose that centrality of assurance of faith. And that to me is, it's one of the big reasons to be a Protestant. It, it is, and the, the the threefold division of the catechism is not only uh, helpful in terms of our own discipleship, that threefold division of guilt, grace, and gratitude, but it's also a wonderful um, mechanism for evangelism. Mm. 
to be able to share the Absolutely. gospel with yeah. people, that yeah. we are guilty, that uh, that there is grace in Christ, and that uh, we live in gratitude to his, his grace. The, the, the very first question is such a great opportunity for evangelism, because it gets to the heart of things. And I, and I know that we're, we're short on time, but I did just want to mention something that John is doing. He's serving as a editor for a new series of, of commentaries, Lectio Continua. Um, I've had the chance to uh, to look at quite a bit the Galatians um, edition, and I just purchased uh, the First Corinthians that Kim uh, Kim Riddlebarger wrote. I would so far I would I could say confidently that this is a great resource for pastors, and not just pastors, but if you're a serious Sunday school teacher or Bible study leader, uh, these look like they'll be a terrific uh, resource. So, John, thank you for for the vision there. Yeah, and it's a tremendous encouragement to know that. Uh with all of the church planting that's going on, there is a, what I would regard as a more sober and mature approach to it being represented by guys like John. You're not going to find John headlining at any of the big conferences. Nobody's going to be making his church plant look glamorous and exciting. <laughs> and, and no zip lines either. No zip lines. Right. Uh, and, you know, okay, we're meeting him in a tanning booth, but once he moves to South Carolina, <laughs> he, won't, he won't need to visit the tanning booth anymore. But it's a reminder that the day-to-day work of the church is being done by pastors that nobody's ever heard of, mm. uh, hammering away in they places preach, without any, without any getting any kudos, without getting anything exciting in, in, intervening in their lives. It's just day-to-day hard work, word, sacraments, discipline, discipling. So, John, I want to thank you for. Uh, what you represent, and thank you for the work that you're intending to do uh, in South Carolina. Thank you so much. Um, and I do want to say, too, that one of the attendants is here from the tanning bed, and he said he can help you with that white, pasty British skin. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I also, now, Carl, you just I'm said I'm saving my money for the hair plates and the Botox. <laughs> I, I, I feel like I've got to say this also. Carl just used a word, and I want to make sure that our listeners know that it wasn't a profanity he said kudos uh carl that word is kudos uh for americans <laughs> and so i just i just wanted to make sure i'm afraid some of our listeners would think that we've crossed a line and we the, really hadn't the abominable crimes that <laughs> americans commit with the english language do not bear speaking about anyway on that note i'd better close us out before we have a fight breaking out here i know how aggressive church planters can be and, uh, and John looks very intimidating in his muscle shirt, so we've got to be, got to be careful. Uh, but this has been uh, the Mortification of Spin, the podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Please visit our website at mortificationofspin.org. And if you appreciate the ministry, if you've been helped by the ministry, then please send a small donation. Thank you very much. <laughs>